Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. And today we have a very interesting guest. Uh, Darren M. Slade, PhD, is among many other things the president of the Global Centre for Religious Research. He's a director on the North American Committee on Religious Trauma Research and co-founder of the Faith X Project. Uh, but as I say, amongst many other things, um, too many to mention, but um, welcome to the podcast, Darren Slade. Yeah, Celine, Stephen, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Really interesting to talk to you. I can't wait. Um so a while back, I was approached by someone from the Global Center for Religious Research on my Twitter feed and to ask if we'd be interested in talking about the work of the Global Center for Religious Research. So, um, well, that sounds really interesting and uh, I had a little look at the stuff and I thought, well, you know, I'm always looking for guests. So I thought, well, I replied to the person and said, well, would somebody like to talk about it to us? So, uh, so then she came back and said, um, oh, actually... Um, our president would like to. So, great, great, excellent. So, here you are. So, um, that's one of the things we want to talk about. And obviously, it's something that is dear to your heart. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about your story. Um, and then, you know, lots of other things to, to get into as well. So, I don't know. Let's start with the Global Center for Religious Research and the work that that's doing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Global Center for Religious Research is a bit of, um, well, it's a revolutionary in uh, way of tackling academia. I had received my PhD and was applying to hundreds of professorships all over the United States and wasn't getting even callbacks, had no interviews. And it was then that I realized just how cutthroat and exploitative academia was. Uh, the researchers and academics would publish their books but get nothing for royalties. Uh, they would pay outrageous prices for academic society memberships just to go and present their own papers and also have to foot the bill for travel and lodging. So we wanted to upend this. We wanted to revolutionize academia by making research, religious research in particular, a lot more accessible and uh, create an organization that actually benefited the researchers, the people who were doing the backbreaking work. So right. it actually started out uh, just for us to create a platform to offer certification programs. We wanted, we knew that there were tons of people who wanted to learn about the philosophy of religion, the sociology of religion, things like that. Uh, but of course, people weren't getting much of an opportunity to do so. That was the original idea. And it still is part of us. Uh, but then we ended up 
publishing academic books, which has been a great success as well. I think one of the the things that I, I mean, we talked about this very recently, actually, the inaccessibility of um, uh, academic papers and academic work to the general population. Um, I mean, that's kind of the other side of it. Obviously, this is from the perspective of the, of, I suppose, the general public and researchers um, also trying to access papers to inform their research. Is that also something that you're interested in looking at? Oh, absolutely. It's probably our biggest philosophy is making sure that not only can an academic get their work read and and published um, by other academics, but that it gets promoted and is seen throughout the world. Unless you have access to a a research engine at a research university's library, oftentimes your academic paper isn't going to be seen by anyone. Exactly. Yeah, and this is this is something we, we were talking to somebody about conspiracy theories yesterday, actually. And, um, you know, one of the points that we made was that if you want to find what the latest scientific research is on something mm. about, you know, you name it, well, let's not go into it, but uh, whatever it is, it's actually really quite difficult. Um, so I finished my master's uh, sort of 18 months ago. And at that point, all of a sudden, I now cannot access any academic papers other than the, oh, you know, wow. the, the relatively few that are available through um, open access sort of forums, which isn't isn't that easy. Um, so I think that's yeah, that's a really interesting initiative. I, I definitely applaud that. That's fantastic. And that the the motto of the era is uh, people saying, I, I'm, I did my own research. Exactly. Well, they probably kind of did, but when they don't have access to the real research, the real scholarship. Exactly. exactly. So is it surprising that, you know, what people think research is, is watching some YouTube channels? You know, that's uh, we just simply if we want people to be more science literate and more research literate then absolutely i I totally um agree with that and and i think part of the work that you've been doing there is is into um correct me if i'm wrong but is into religious trauma and the way that that affects people um how's how's that going what's that all about yeah um well this is actually uh and a major initiative of GCRR. So uh, the Global Center for Religious Research established has established the most comprehensive uh, international research group to study the causes, manifestations, and treatment options for those suffering from religious trauma. Um, but we have a big problem. So in order for victims of religious trauma to receive help, they need we need to arrive at a place in our culture where religious trauma is accepted as a real mental health condition Mm. and unfortunately the academic study of religious trauma is still in its infancy when compared to other uh, studies in mental health Uh, there are no exhaustive empirical studies to support what you know we all know to be true which is that religious trauma exists and is a chronic problem in just about every faith tradition. So we actually started a major sociological study. It's the world's first and largest and most comprehensive uh, empirical study on religious trauma uh, to study what percentage of the population struggles with it, it suffers from religious trauma, uh, what are the main causes of it, and what are the main denominational traditions uh, that are causing it as well. Wow, that sounds really interesting. 
uh, hopefully I'm not jumping ahead, but what brought you to want to um, study that that particular area? Well, first and foremost, uh, as academics, we're always looking for gaps of knowledge. We want to fill those gaps, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, the second thing, as a former Baptist minister, and as somebody who, when I came out publicly as an atheist, I lost everything. I lost uh, my entire family. I lost all my friends, support network, everything, and had to start all over. All because I was see- I was viewed as somebody who betrayed the faith. Mm-hmm. And in order to cope with my new worldview, I attend- started attending uh, recovery from religion groups. Mm-hmm counseling groups and support groups and the amount of stories that I would hear from people of the trauma that they've endured from religion or from a religious context was so heartbreaking. And you realize, like I said, it's a chronic problem. Mm. And by the way, we actually have just got some of the preliminary research in from our sociological study. um, And uh, the research will be published very soon, uh, later this year. It's pretty significant. We're estimating, uh, just a sneak peek for your listeners. We're estimating, yeah. Um, we're estimating about 34% of the U S population suffers from religious trauma. Wow. That's, um, that's shocking, but not shocking, um, in a way, isn't it? Um, I guess, yeah, uh, we certainly see, a lot of it, you know, uh, on this podcast. And as we talk to lots of people, Mm -hmm. um, I definitely want to get to your story uh, in a lot more detail, Darren, just going back to your, um, this research, how's the research done? What's the, um, methodology? How, how are you getting the, uh, the data? Yeah. Uh, everything is, uh, peer reviewed and done, uh, legitimately. So we had, uh, taken massive samples of the U.S. population, both uh, gender, racial uh, samples, um, so that it do- so that the people we interview and talk to do in fact represent the U.S. We then asked questions, just general questions, to get a good demographic makeup of our interviewees, but. One thing when it comes to religious trauma, that's kind of a unique part of our methodology. You don't want to just go right up to somebody and say, hey, do you suffer from religious trauma? Because yeah. um, <clears throat> either they're going to want to say yes, because they love to self-diagnose, or they'll say no, because they don't want the stigma or something. Sure. Instead, there's a roundabout way. So in the study of trauma, we know what how trauma manifests in the body and in, in adulthood and people's lives, how it disrupts their lives. So we would ask certain questions like that. Do you have nightmares? What are the nightmares about? Do you, uh, do you get anxious or, or feel anxiety when you pass a church or something like that? So we have these roundabout ways. And by the way, these questions were developed by professional sociologists yep. uh, and counselors and therapists. Uh, so as one, not to re-trigger people, of course, uh, and re-victimize them with our questions, but also to get at the heart of what's going on. Because even if somebody, some it is possible for somebody to suffer from religious trauma, but because this is such a new thing, they don't know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a roundabout way of asking and getting to the core of it. Sure. So it's based around a questionnaire or a set of questionnaires? Um, yeah, a very extensive one, yes. Constructed through 
conversations and discussions, I suppose, to make sure that you're getting the right questions. Absolutely. Um, and of course, when the publication comes out, you'll be all of this is accessible. You'll be able to yeah. see exactly what questions and the can't wait. That sounds fantastic. Really, really interesting work. Yeah. It's something that I've, you know, felt myself. I mean, there's a um lots of research around groups, um, but most of it tends to be qualitative, which is great because you know I'm I'm a big fan of qualitative research, but I think we need we need a bit of quali- um, quantitative stuff too, um, and so I think we you know there's there's definitely a need for all that all that work. So that sounds fantastic, great yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Well, you know, and right now what we mostly have in the literature are anecdotal case That's studies right. yeah. uh, from the counselors publishing, you know, this is a, a patient of mine that suffers from something related to religion. Yeah. Uh, what we need is the empirical foundation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's something I'm, I'm people who obviously listen to this podcast will know I, I bang on about that quite a lot and the need for more scientific rigor in our theorizing around what, uh, what groups, religions and cults do and how they operate. So hopefully this is the start of many. I've heard of others as well that are being done. So that's that's fantastic. Great stuff. Can't wait. So when do you think that's going to come out? <laughs> hopefully by the winter uh, okay. is probably the expected date. Right. Okay, great. Um, so um, Celine's hinted at it, but um, obviously you, you've had your own experience. And I have to say, when, when I got the message to say, oh, you know, um, our president would would be interested in talking to you i did a bit of background and i i looked at your um history and you you went to liberty university and straight away when i saw that i thought oh that's a bit odd um i wonder what his agenda is <laughs> so so and then that's i think that's kind of what's well, bad on me actually that i i had that response um but that tells us something about your background. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your story, uh, Darren? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. In fact, uh, it was a fairly broken and abusive home that had no religious affiliation. Yet at a young age, I was absolutely enamored with religion. I would, I found a King James Bible, started trying to memorize it. Don't know why. I just absolutely loved religion. And from a traumatic experience in high school, I ended up becoming a zealot. I turned to religion hardcore, became a a Christian fundamentalist, and was immensely dedicated to the church, to evangelism. I wanted to be, more than anything, a Christian apologist. I wanted to defend and prove the Christian faith true. So I, years later, end up finally going to uh, seminary. I get a master's in theology, master's of divinity, start my PhD program at Liberty University for theology and apologetics. Uh, my cognate was uh, church history. So having all three of those studies under my belt, but by the first year at Liberty, it became fairly obvious that what we were all engaging in was a confirmation bias. I was supposed to be getting trained by some of the best apologists in the world, and the arguments were so bad. The rationale and methodologies were so poor that 
it was easy to object to them, but also just to counter them. You know, I discovered things like cognitive biases and the confirmation bias. And I wanted to know, were we susceptible to this? Were we engaging in this? So I deliberately went out of my way to try and falsify the Christian faith, thinking I wasn't going to. <laughs> and lo and behold, the actual scholarship, the amount of academic research by real scholars was so overwhelming and so counter to the narrative that I was being given at seminary and at Liberty and at my church, uh, that it was just no longer logically tenable to hold on to my faith. Wow. So I guess from that point, you can like go through that process. Then what do you do from there? Are you just like, Oh, I have to like, (laughs) what what now? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, giving a short synopsis doesn't really Mm -hmm. express the anguish and the Mm -hmm. absolute heartache and pain. I was in the process of losing everything Mm -hmm. uh, more than I even realized. I fought and fought and fought it so hard. I wanted it to be true so hard. Um, So I experimented. I experimented with Kierkegaardian existentialism to try and say, well, it's it's supposed to be absurd and irrational, and I just Mm -hmm. hold on to my faith that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that wasn't I couldn't endure it. I was too much of an intellectual. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing was losing my best friend, and that would have been Jesus, as losing what I thought was real. And having to come to terms with this idea that I don't have somebody looking out for me. I don't have somebody holding my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, looking back on my life, you say, yeah, he never really was. Mm-hmm. But um, and then, of course, the fallout, mm-hmm. you know, it would have been a lot easier for me to just keep attending church and to keep and to keep it to myself. Mm-hmm. Um But if I was to remain authentic and true to myself, mm-hmm. I finally had to come out as an atheist. And like I said, the, everything imploded on me. Um, I, I certainly recognize that so much, um, Darren. Um, it's, it echoes my story so much, you know, what I've talked about. Uh, I remember that panicky feeling um, when mm-hmm. you, for the first time, start addressing some of those little niggly little doubts that you might have had for a while and you sort of allow yourself for the first time to actually look them square in the face. Hmm. Um, and you get that kind of nervy, panicky feeling that you're you're going down a road that is going to be difficult for you. And yeah, I, I totally recognize that. So you, you said that you didn't, you weren't raised um, in a particularly Christian household, but I guess by this time, your social infrastructure, everybody you knew, cared about, your direction of your life, your identity, all of this is wrapped up in this set of beliefs. Absolutely. The goal uh, for my life was to start a church, was to be a pastor uh, and a professional apologist. Mm -hmm. So um, absolutely. Walking away and betraying the faith, Mm -hmm. uh, you you lose everything, everyone. 
So, um, just um, for those who are not familiar with um, with the belief system, um, uh, so it's Baptist Baptist Church, was it you said? Yeah. Um, so, how fundamental was that uh, that church? So, in terms of your belief, so um, are we talking New Earth creationism? Are we talking miracles? All those mm-hmm. sorts of things. You know, I was almost always the the individual who was most fundamentalist, most zealous, wherever, whatever congregation I was in, right. uh, places were almost never fundamentalist enough for me. <laughs> Interestingly, though, when I started attending seminary, that's what eased up uh, seminary at Liberty. That's actually what eased up my fundamentalism is they helped me realize that fundamentalist Christianity was bonkers. Wow. And How did they do that? Exposure a lot more to, to moderate literature, to moderate evangelical scholarship. Yeah. Um, and they directly addressed it. You know, yeah. Fundamentalism is doing damage. And uh, even though it was the bastion, it was the house of fundamentalism in the United States. Mm. So I kind of became more moderate as an evangelical and then I started to see my political views change quite a bit because I start. I actually read the Bible. I actually learned the Bible and realized that my conservative political views didn't align uh, with what I thought our faith taught. Yeah. So it was actually through uh, education, a process of weaning me away from fundamentalism, becoming a little bit more moderate, which also then allowed me to ask hard questions about my faith. As a fundamentalist, you believe, you assert that you believe, and you don't give any impression of doubt because if you express any doubt, then you get on God's bad side. He mm. won't favor you, won't bless you. You need to always show faith in God. Mm. Moving away from that type of strict, controlling faith community, that mindset uh, allows the freedom, the liberty <laughs> to actually ask questions of your faith so how did you how did you make that journey then so you're you're obviously in a pretty good place now you're um you've directed all that energy and that uh um, you know good ambition to um to into another area so how did you manage that transition well lots and lots of therapy (laughs) (laughs) was um i i'd say the transition is still happening Mm. it has been especially when Every you know, I came out as an atheist just before the pandemic hit. Oh, so you're still quite new in that yes. uh, that regard. Okay, right. wow. uh, and and it was during the pandemic that I lost everything. So, yeah. uh, still trying to figure out the world, still trying to figure out my place in it. It's mm-hmm. an interesting uh, time to go through that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I was wondering if uh, if that's potentially more if there's been an influx or not of people leaving during pandemic time, just because, you know, being away from physical, like physical proximity of certain people, certain, like the church itself, things like that. I don't know. I have no idea, but I wonder if that's um, for some people played an impact. Yeah. And the research is still pending, but indications suggest that, people are not going to return to church like they once did mm-hmm. after this pandemic. That church, the institutional church, is likely to move uh, 
pretty, and I, it won't be exclusively, but it'll be strongly online like they've had to do during the mm -hmm. pandemic. It'll probably stay that way, which mm -hmm. means now, of course, church attendance has been petering out and, and in decline for decades now. The pandemic may have actually really driven a, a nail in the coffin for mm -hmm. institutionalized forms of religion, mm -hmm. because for the first time in a long time, people now realize what life is like not having to attend church services in person. And they probably enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, I know from my, my ex community. So I was raised um, as a, a Jehovah's witness. I think I, I, I said that in our sort of earlier email discussions. Um, so Jehovah's witnesses are obviously very, very busy normally uh knocking on doors trying to proselytize trying to um there's there's lots of meetings they attend every week and so on um and Not yeah right everything's now. everything's been done from home <laughs> via zoom yeah they don't um, knock on doors because obviously that would be mm, a bit of a no-no during a pandemic so they mm, write yeah. um letters that they photocopy and um they uh you know yeah are on zoom so it's a very different environment but mm. it kind of I mean, I'm kind of glad, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I do wonder if it's having a, a, an impact, and it sounds like it probably is. Yeah, yeah, I think I, th I think gives a bit it, of space. It's quite surprising. Quite a few people that we've talked to um, also left just around the pandemic time. So, mm -hmm. you know, it is very anecdotal, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see what uh, what the numbers say actually after mm. once the dust settles. I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. Um, Okay, so I, I guess one of the things that you mentioned there was um, the infrastructure around uh, fundamentalist religion. So we're based in the UK, um, so we, we tend to look across to the States. And, um, I mean, you know, the UK has got its own problems, you know, um, which we could talk about a lot. One of the things I think we find quite surprising is the, the power of fundamentalist religion within certain parts of the states and and the political system and it um it seems to be even more so so obviously trump um has seems to have affiliated himself with a certain brand of fundamentalism um which i think we find really perplexing because trump seems as far away from the example of jesus as you could possibly get but i don't know whether you've got any ways of explaining that to us or what your insights are in that area yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. The United States seems to be a Petri dish. And this is right from its beginnings, mm. 1600s, 1700s. It's a Petri dish for new religious movements and zealotry. It is in our DNA to create new cults. Mm. And so watching in real time the development of the cult personality cult. Uh, the, the Trump personality cult has been surreal. For academics, it's been, I dare say, fat, fun to watch only because we're, <laughs> you, we actually get to study this in real time. We're watching it. But at the same time, existentially scary as hell. Uh, it is a genuine cult of personality. I saw it firsthand at Liberty University when I had professors who were in love with him 
And it was amazing how they could rationalize away every flaw. And of course, back then, there was no hint that he was a Messiah figure like Cyrus. Um, you know, that he's just a secular Messiah, something like that, a pagan. No, no, no. Originally, they all wanted to make sure it was known he was a devout Christian, Bible-believing, hardcore Jesus freak, somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, another huge indication to me as a student that Christians, at least my brand of Christians, the people I surrounded myself with, were willing to lie to themselves and to live in a delusion so long as it didn't actually mean giving up the faith, whatever. What the Trump cult indicates is that Christianity has, at least in the United States especially, that Christianity has been usurped by political agendas, that the church is not actually running the show, the church isn't running its own programs, it is the politicians running it. And they are so gullible and naive that they don't even realize that they have just become pawns and puppets Mm. by people who, like Trump, couldn't care less about their religion, couldn't care less about them as people. They're just there to be exploited. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I'm always we're, we're always fairly careful on this um, this podcast to because um, we're, we're very conscious that this is you know this is America. It's not our country. So I think you know uh, a British podcast um, mm. criticizing American politicians. Um, always feels perhaps a little bit presumptuous so I'm always fairly careful but I suppose that my my emotion is is confusion mm. um, I genuinely want to understand what's happening um, and it I, I can definitely see what politicians get out of aligning themselves with a big block of constituents um, who you know, if you say the right things, they'll vote for you. And I mean, politicians have always done that of different stripes. So I think that's completely understandable. Um, but what I, what I struggle with more is is what the religious groups get out of it. You know, so I suppose I suppose Trump's delivered some of the things that that they've wanted. Perhaps that's what what maybe it I suppose comes it's down an to. idea, not just what the what things he's actually doing, but maybe an idea of like our man is in sort of thing. Like we're we're getting our ideology out there, even if it's not really, but it feels like it potentially. Like you know, you if, think, you, if you, your team members winning, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, what we, what he is delivering is a culture clash, is a, a mm. culture war, and a mm-hmm. feeling of, of being back in the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in 2020, uh, world-renowned anthropologist Dr. David Jack David Eller uh, wrote a book called Trump and Political Theology, and it is an anthropological look at what has developed and how this was even possible in the first place. I highly recommend the book. Mm. Uh, That will give you a lot more insight about what is happening uh, politically and theologically. But Celine, I think you're absolutely right. What 
is being delivered is the punch back is the fighting back against a culture that no longer sees religion or no longer sees Christianity. And in a lot of ways, no longer sees the traditional conservative values as relevant anymore. They feel left out. They feel marginalized and oppressed. Even if it's kind of laughable that they feel marginalized and oppressed, this is their, their martyrdom complex their victim complex. And so when a bully like Trump shows up on a platform and fights back and says the very things that they just want to hear that confirms in their heart that they are really uh, marginalized and oppressed. Oh, and of course the other side, they're evil, they're Satanists, uh, they're whiny, they're (laughs) pathetic. These things just resonate so much with them. So he's simply delivering a gang mindset for them, a turf warfare for them. That is interesting. It it is interesting, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I think it's it's, uh, clearly, you know, many minds greater than... Um, then, well, certainly, um, Selena may have um, <laughs> have grappled with uh, with exactly what's what's happening there. I'm sure it's quite complicated. I mean, one of our guests, um, uh, a previous guests, who ha- also has a podcast called Mindshift, he's um, he's been talking to um, some people about this uh, Dominion theology and the Seven Mountains version of that have you come across that at all darren yeah i have not uh directly as in a theology that i know of people who have followed sure. not even at liberty or in my circles but yeah I'm that's aware interesting so um mm-hmm. i mean it, it sounds like a conspiracy theory which i'm always quite um uh quite you know uh hesitant to get involved in but the the idea is that you've got you know the the, the seven areas of of culture i suppose that if you can become dominant in then then you can uh you you can forward the the christian message and the christian agenda i suppose simply that's that's what what it's about and i guess politically that seems to be um successful uh, to a degree at least and has been Mm. um in, in relation to to trump um but yeah it's quite um it it is quite frightening um I, I wanted to, to also talk to you a little bit about some of your work so you uh you sent me when we were talking over email you said if you want to you know if you want to talk to me about some of my work here's some of my work and um my goodness you've done a lot of stuff um so there's lots and lots of papers there lots of work um too much to talk about today but and there's a couple that really tickled my fancy one was around miracles so you've done uh, a piece of uh, academic work around miracles uh, which i always find really interesting we haven't really discussed it much on our podcast so maybe this is one uh, that we can sort of pick up and run with but um the first thing I, I would like to ask you would be from the other side is you know how how come people believe in miracles uh, it seems so strange and what is the how do apologetics uh, try to justify the belief in miracles. I mean, how how does that actually work? Although I, of course, I used to believe in them myself, but I find it hard to to understand how I ever did. 
Um, yes. Not much of a question there. Sorry, Darren. But um, what's your observations <laughs> about that? Place to go. <laughs> yeah. Question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same here. Having been a zealot, I believe I have personally seen and experienced miracles in my own life. Mm-hmm. And now, as an atheist, people want to know. So, how do you explain those past experiences? Yes. And the answer is quite simple: psychology, cognitive yeah. distortions. Uh, the publication that you're talking about is in a book called The Case Against Miracles. And my contribution to it, uh, by the way, this contribution was also published in uh, the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Religion, where I took apart uh, miracle claims and, and examined the psychological factors that would in fact create the perfect conditions for people to believe that they have experienced or witnessed a miracle. And the point isn't to say that these cognitive or psychological distortions are happening in every case, but rather to point out that they could be happening and nobody is properly investigating whether they have happened. Mm -hmm. Christian apologists love miracle stories. Mm but they're not going to go and do the hardcore in-depth investigation, the forensic kind of investigation necessary to demonstrate whether a miracle has actually occurred. They're willing to stick just with the eyewitness testimony. And this isn't good. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, you know, probably one of the most obvious things, one of the most um, is things like interviewer bias, where if uh, somebody is telling you a story about a miracle that they've experienced and they see in the other person. Um, uh, and by, I guess this is a, this is a feedback bias uh, that they see in the other person that they're getting excited. They're getting happy. There's a big smile on their face. Then the storyteller ends up embellishing the stories and elaborate, you know, making up more details to the miracle story, which then becomes a part of the official memory. Mm-hmm. Things like this or the interviewer bias, which is, uh, you know, a Christian apologist interviews a supposed miracle witness, but the interviewer implants memories into the witness just by the way they ask questions, the words that they that they choose to use. We need to consider these things. The fact that people over time add more and more details that are completely bogus to their memories. So the point of the publication is to show that just because somebody claims to have witnessed something doesn't actually make it so. There are perfectly, and in fact, a multitude of natural explanations for why somebody would claim to have experienced or witnessed a miracle. And these things need to be ruled out first before you conclude a genuine miracles occurred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've been recently. Um, I, I don't do so much these days. When I when I first um, left my religious organisation, I, I did a lot of sort of observing debates and discussions. But I've recently sort of fallen back into it, that rabbit hole again. But um, the the uh, resurrection of Jesus is, of course, mm-hmm. the big one that apologists um, obviously really it really means a lot to them. That one, that's um, the biggie. Um, so I was listening to one fairly recently about that, and um, yeah, I, I I was trying to understand the the reasoning behind it. So 
the obviously the the claim or from from an atheist point of view is well you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence but i suppose the big one that comes back is well why would christians lie about this thing that that mm. would then um actually make life really difficult for them and you know it wasn't really uh, in their interest to to follow this this jesus he he wasn't um doing the things that they expected for instance and you know why would they do it if it wasn't true if they hadn't seen him raised from the dead why would they put themselves in this dangerous position many of them were killed through persecution and so on um seems quite a weak argument to me but i guess that's that's one that I suppose, actually, quite frankly, I've used in the past myself when I've been stood on a door, stood um, talking to a householder. Um, I, I don't know what you think about that argument. You know, when we are investigating eyewitnesses, there are two main things that we want to determine. Their credibility and their suitability. And credibility being, uh, are they lying? Do they have an incentive, an invested interest in the outcome of you believing their lies? As, uh, um, and do they have maybe personality disorder type of things, things that could be wrong with them uh, that make it likely that they're distorting their own reality? And then the suitability thing, were they actually there? Were they actually in a good enough position? Um, and the truth of the matter is we have zero eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Zero. Now, uh, the closest we get is the Apostle Paul writing, saying that he witnessed uh, a raised Jesus. But, of course, the only details we have of what he witnessed uh, is, a, is the, uh, the writer in Luke, uh, in Acts, saying that Paul saw a bright blinding light. I'm not exactly convinced that there was a massive conspiracy to, to uh, BS a resurrection story. I think a resurrection story was just part and parcel of a Mediterranean world, of the ancient Mediterranean world that both Second Temple Judaism and Greco-Roman culture had these narratives and had these stories already as stockpiled things that you said about demigods. So when Jesus died, and this is, of course, assuming he was an historical person in the first place. If So he dies. It is not hard to imagine people having spiritual experiences after his death. And this was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world where you communicated with the dead. I mean, people still talk about that now, don't they? They're like, mm. oh, I saw um, a Robin yeah. and my grandma said she loved Robins and that was definitely mm. her or, you know, stuff like yes. that. So it's right. not, it's quite believable that people mm. would, yeah, feed things into their day-to-day -day life and be like, oh, it's a sign of that. Yes. And the earliest tradition we have, the, the earliest, um, what we, we kind of, uh, we call it uh, a bit of a motto, if you will. The earliest tradition in scripture about Jesus being raised from the dead is just says that God raised him from the dead. Mm -hmm. This could, was in fact interpreted so many different ways. Even in the New Testament itself, uh, you know, Jesus was thought to be the 
raised resurrection of John the Baptist who had been beheaded. Um, Jesus talks about what he thinks a resurrection is as it, it sounds more like an ascension to becoming an angel up in heaven. Um, so the phrase, God raised him from the dead, to be raised from the dead did not and was not consistently interpreted as a physical body reanimating, mm -hmm. a corpse being revivified. So it's not hard to imagine that Christians go around talking about Jesus raising from the dead, the original ones. Um, and what they mean is something more mystical, something more spiritual, or something more like what we think of as the ascension. That when Jesus died, his soul went up to heaven and he became he was divinized. Hmm. That, and of course, this actually sounds a lot what Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul seems to think is what was going on. Um, that Jesus had a spiritual body now and was given a new place in heaven. Later on, as the diaspora, as the outskirts of the empire start to hear the same thing, they hear it differently. They don't know, they don't realize that they're talking about a spiritual or mystical resurrection or ascension. They actually start to take it a little bit more literally. Mm -hmm. Did his body come out of the grave? Oh yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really interesting. And what it what it speaks to is the the way that you know, from a psychological point of view, that people try to make sense of the world by what's around them at the time and the culture that surrounds them. So, um, the way that people would have would have understood what was written um, two thousand years ago is probably quite different to the way that we would understand. Um, this very same text, even if we understood the words and the grammar and and so on, which of course we we do quite well, but just the meaning behind it. Uh, there's lots of symbolism in the Bible, of course we know that, um, and I think we come at this from a very modern perspective, which is that you know somebody saw something, they report it, and we assume they are making a claim about some physical reality that means something, whereas it might. You know, people would have interpreted uh, things in a much different way back 2,000 years ago. Add to that the telling, retelling, and the continual reinterpretation of um, events, as, as you say, if they did happen in the first place, it means it's very difficult to get a real, um, a real level of confidence. And it seems to me that the the argument that all that always seems to end the discussion is, well, you know, miracles are miraculous. Mm. Um, so mm. therefore we, we, we should expect that God can do miraculous things because God is able to do miraculous things. And it is a completely circular argument. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you to, uh, to actually prove or disprove it. Um, but yeah, so very interesting, uh, piece of work. I haven't read it from, from cover to cover it goes in your your piece goes into quite a lot of detail um but i thought it was very very interesting and, and it it definitely resonated with uh, with a lot of the stuff i've been listening to i know um a few people that were like um part of like fundamentalist groups as well the reason part of what made them leave is like they either had always been or became disabled and they said that people would say to them like oh you're not praying enough or believing enough clearly mm -hmm. for a miracle um they, they realized 
it wasn't them not believing it enough or whatever like it just wasn't mm. it just wasn't you know real the, the miracles they thought that they were kind of owed weren't going to happen but i don't know what you think about that well it just ties right in with uh, religious mm. trauma <laughs> the idea that the reason you're disabled the reason that you're ill whatever mm. something bad happens to you it's mm. you don't have enough faith mm. you don't have enough faith we uh, there's a class that I teach on miracles and uh, mm -hmm. investigating miracles, mm -hmm. and one of the things that we do in class is we expose just how con men, faith healers, uh, televangelists go about BSing and, and brainwashing and and uh, manipulating their audience and the tactics that are used. A lot of it is just straight up con man tactics, mm -hmm. old school con man magician tricks yeah but one thing that they get help with is the believers themselves perpetuate the nonsense and people think it's fairly innocuous it's fairly benign to just say you know i i believe god can do miracles okay you think it's harmless to say such mm -hmm. a thing but we can actually draw a direct line from statements like that to countless amounts of people who have committed suicide because they were expecting a miracle. And why were they expecting a miracle? Because their friends and family say, yeah, God does can and does do miracles. Mm -hmm. Or people who epileptics who stop taking their medication, have a seizure and drown in the bath or fall in, 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 in uh, traffic and are hit by a car. We can draw a direct line to just very basic beliefs in nonsense and j demonstrate just how detrimental it can be. Mm. Yeah. I suppose that leads us perhaps for the last um, five, 10 minutes to, uh, uh, to my final question um i don't know Celine, if you've got any others no, but um I, I was thinking about when you leave um any sort of religious group um it's really the raison d'etre of this podcast in a way um coming to terms with the world outside and with your own identity who you are and your hope for the future and all of that seems is quite a quite a tough job it, it takes some time to do um what what's your insight into that and how are you getting on with that how have you managed to make sense of your life since leaving the mm. uh the religious group that you're part of i think the most important thing that i had to learn and i think it's important for others to know is that they're not alone if you're having doubts if you have already left uh your faith in your heart or in your mind um and then when you finally choose to leave it physically, you are not alone. It is actually happening all over the place, even among the clergy and those who are professional theologians and professional ministers. They're leaving by the droves. And this is because you're not crazy. And it's not because you're sinful. It's not because you're just wanting to live a debaucherous life. <laughs> you are not crazy. You're not alone. Get into a support group. Find a community because we're out there. 
I had no idea just how huge and supportive and encouraging the atheist community was. And my, to my knowledge, uh, just about every major city, every major location has uh, support groups, atheist support groups for those who have left. And if you can't find it in person, they are definitely exist online. So you're not alone. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I found um, I'm a member of the Humanist UK Society, which um, I find really helpful. I, I visit schools and talk about humanism, which is really nice. Um, so I think that, yes, there are absolutely ways of, of filling that gap. Um, meaning, I suppose, is the bit that I that people would say to me, you know, what's the point of life? What's mm. the meaning of life if there isn't a God? You know, I mean, I have my own views about that. Well, what's your thoughts? You know, the easy answer is to take uh, a, a Sartrean existential perspective. You know, I create my own meaning. Mm. I don't know if that's really satisfying for a lot of us. I'm not so sure I need to have an answer to that either. I don't, I don't know what the point of living is. I don't know what the purpose is. Mm. I'm not so sure I need one either. And that's um, that, that, again echoes something we've talked about a lot you know not knowing is one of the great things about leaving a, a an all-encompassing belief system you can actually say do you know what i don't know it's a really good question um we don't know the answer to that yet and i certainly mm-hmm. don't um yeah so that's that's probably quite a good place to uh, to leave it um thank you very much for joining us today darren we've really enjoyed having you on the show um so many things we could talk about um at some point maybe we can get you back and talk about some specific uh bits of research and really get into the weeds on that um i wish you so much luck with the uh and you know all the best with your with the research and with the uh, with the institution you 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 head up um there was a recently i i did actually um, let people know about the convention you did in december um because you were you were promoting that and i couldn't make it because it came at sort of last minute but is that going to happen every year is that something that you hoping to do regularly yeah absolutely uh gcrr does regular academic conferences we have one on atheism the historical jesus religious trauma the holocaust absolutely just take a look at our website at uh, gcrr.org and you'll be able to see all the information there Great. So we'll put that in the show notes um, and keep us abreast with what's going on. And um, hopefully we can, uh, yeah, we can keep passing that on to our listeners. I'm sure they'd be really, really interested. Uh, Darren, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>